Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. That's page 1016 in the Bible provided for you, if you're borrowing one from us this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22 are our passage. Uh, Starting next week and for four weeks, we'll have a Christmas series. We'll call it The Birth of Jesus Christ. We'll be working through the first two chapters of the gospel according to Matthew. We have little cards that uh, you can take, uh, stacks of these little invitation cards that are out on the the counters in the lobby. Uh, you, You can't take too many. I mean, don't take them all. But take as many as you can give away and then go ahead and double that in case you have more opportunities you weren't planning on. We've sent mailers to folks in our surrounding community, and we mean to take full advantage of the fact that in our day and in this place, the culture tends to turn its attention to Christmas or the holidays or whatever, but folks are open to an invitation. So let's play good hosts these next few weeks. You're familiar, perhaps, on Facebook with that that feature uh, marked safe. Maybe there was a hurricane in Florida and you have some friends in a town that was hit and and then you see someone marked safe from Hurricane Ina or Hurricane Sam or fill in the blank. And that would be good news. They're marked safe. They'd be marked safe from some fire in, in California or an earthquake in another part of the world or California. It's another knock on California. It's a beautiful place, but it's dangerous out there. You're familiar with the Mark Safe feature. It's a helpful way to let everybody know that you are alive. Baptism's like that. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience awaited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And this is God's word for us this morning. Baptism is a sign. It's a symbol. It points outside of itself to another reality. It's a, a physical sign, visible of an invisible truth. It is a covenant sign. Throughout scripture, there are various covenants. A covenant is an arrangement between two parties founded on specific promises. And God made a covenant with with Noah. God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with David. You could tell the story of the Bible. In fact, you must tell the story of the Bible along those lines. And it's not that God replaces one covenant with another. 
Um, they are together leading to the new covenant in Jesus Christ. The sign of baptism is a sign of the new covenant in Christ. Uh, covenant signs uh, picture that to which they point. So you think of the sign of the rainbow. It's a bow in the air, hung. Think war bow. God has hung his bow and it is facing up. He will not destroy the earth in that way with a flood ever again as promised. And every time we see the rainbow in the sky, we know that God is patiently waiting for sinners to turn to him and that God is committed to his project with humanity. It's a covenant sign. That's how that one sign worked. There are other signs, some more graphic, that I won't get into at the moment. Sometimes the text requires that. In this case, we'll just move right ahead to baptism. Baptism is a covenant sign involving water and the immersion of water. You go under the water and you come up out of the water. Baptism, the word itself, involves and entails and means immersion, immerse. It's a kind of a violent plunging under and then, and then up. What does that picture? That is part of what we're going to address today. But in short, it pictures our union with Christ in his death and his resurrection to new life. Uh, it pictures Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. But not just his. Our union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And we're united to Jesus. We are saved by grace through faith. Peter says we're saved by baptism. We'll come to that in due time. But we are saved by grace through faith. United to Jesus by faith and baptism pictures that salvation. So baptism is a sign. It's a, a covenant sign. It's a sign of the new covenant in Christ. For that death and resurrection of Jesus takes away all of our sins and gives us a new heart and brings us into new, into new life. And baptism as a sign makes visible that which is invisible. Um, if we were to hit by a comet right now, I believe that uh, William and Nathan are safe with the Lord, having not yet been baptized. But baptism is when we all together agree in the Lord with their professions. I mean, I can say right now, I believe they're, they're Christians, um, but it's a whole other thing for a church to say, we agree in the Lord with your testimony. This is the truth about Jesus, and we know you, and so we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's tremendously encouraging to have that uh, affirmation from a church, not just a pastor who baptizes, but from a local church, and you've entrusted pastors with this process, and we've had them share their story, and all of that. So thank you for that trust. But given all of that, they will have the great encouragement today of being baptized, not just as they have been baptized by the Spirit of God invisibly into one body, but now that water baptism makes that visible and, and concrete, it activates, if you will, church membership. Call it what you want, but, but, but once baptized by a church, now we're all on record and we are committed to them in a way that we were not, even though they were around here on Sundays and involved. Uh, baptism and the way that we've ordered this will confer membership. Uh, everything else is done except for, except for the water. It was about that simple in the New Testament. 
Now, we do some teaching around it, and there are some good reasons for that. Baptism is a sign of the new covenant, uh, of death and new life in Christ. It makes the invisible visible. And baptism is also a sign, this is just another angle on it, a sign of safe passage through judgment. Baptism is a sign of safe passage through judgment. Or to maybe add a little more detail, it's a sign of safe passage through God's judgment into life in God's presence. It's a sign of safe passage through God's judgment. It's a sign of life on the other side of that judgment. Life from God, life with God, a sign that they possess the very life of God within them. Well, it might not appear this way, uh, like such a big deal if we were to watch a baptism. You have here, uh, Peter uh, says that baptism, which we're about to do, corresponds to the story of Noah and the ark. And you think, well, that flood was kind of a big deal. It was a worldwide flood. Um, Everyone knew it was happening, and we're still talking about it today. Well, what we're about to do, um, you know, it doesn't take up too much space. It takes up the space of about a human or two. You get a baptizer in there, and then we get the baptizee in there. We even have to put it up on the wall so you can, so you can see it. See the water back there this morning? It's exciting. So you should be able to see it. We make sure you have a, a good view. Um, but if you're not in the room at the moment, you might not know this is happening. Peter says, this is like that. This, what we're about to do, is kind of like, oh, the story of Noah and the flood. And this is why we preach the gospel and we preach the word before we do the sign. Because if you watch somebody go underwater and come up, even with some words around it and a pastor going about this in a religious context like this, you may not really know what's actually going on. You need spiritual eyes to see in this simple act the very great, immeasurably greater than Noah's flood and salvation, the great act that is taking place before us in a moment like this. We'll work through this passage in in three parts, one question for the text, three pictures of baptism, and then a question for, for all of us. One question for the text. Here it is. How does baptism, verse 21, correspond with the story of Noah's flood? How does baptism correspond with the story of Noah's flood? Or to personalize this a little bit for us this morning, how does our baptism of William Green and Nathan Verips correspond today, correspond with that great worldwide flood that wiped out every human from the face of the earth, save eight, so many thousands of years ago as recorded in Scripture. And it may not be the question you were asking when I read this passage. You might have been getting beat up by questions in your, your own head. Uh, what is this? Went and proclaimed spirit to the spirits in prison, uh, Jesus did that, but uh, who, who is he proclaiming to, and where did that happen exactly, and 
When exactly did that happen? What does he mean by this saves you? Baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you. I mean, if you had sensitive ears, maybe you're wondering, what is this alive in the Spirit? The Holy Spirit, or is just made alive? And then, what is all this about? Because it's a good portion of this whole section, um, how Jesus has gone into heaven, the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What is that doing there as a landing for this passage? So all kinds of questions may come into mind, but a question at the heart of this message that will drive the message is that question. How does baptism correspond with the story of Noah's flood? All right, second point. It'll be longer, it'll be longer, but not too long. Three pictures now of baptism. Three pictures of baptism. So these are correspondences. How does it correspond? How is this like, like that? Well, let's ponder three pictures with our imagination. Imagine this, the waters of judgment. The story of Noah and the flood was a story of a watery judgment. You don't need to turn there, but I will turn there to read some portions. I want you to, to listen, lest we flip back and forth just a touch too much. It's in Genesis 6 that we have the story of humanity multiplying on the face of the land, and there's this peculiar story of this, these people, the Nephilim, uh, and the daughters were born to them, and the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they, they took as their wives any that they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, and they were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. There's much debate over who exactly these characters are. Are they fallen angels, some other class of creature? Um, it's not particularly relevant to our text, which is really exciting to be able to say because it's also very tricky to solve here. We don't have a ton on this, but there are some good hints and direction. But I want to highlight for you where we're at. Noah's story is not in isolation in the Bible. So you think of the story of Noah's ark. Well, it could be anywhere in the Bible and it would stand alone just fine, right? Well, not really. It comes six chapters in as our Old Testament is divided and it comes at a very particular point. And this whole little episode right here, which has got all us distracted with what's going on, serves to highlight how bad things have gotten. The place is condemned. That's the point. Earth needs to get shut down. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam takes the fruit with Eve and they're banished from the garden. They can't be in God's presence because of his grace. He sends them out with a covering and with a promise and she gives birth to children and they live. And that's amazing. Adam names his wife mother of the living. He gets it. God is not done with humanity. But things are not going to be the same. Um, it's cold and it's dark and it's difficult outside the garden. The whole world is under a curse. And it's not a chapter later that we have Cain killing Abel and we have the sons of Cain reaping destruction on each other and we have men taking multiple wives and multiple women and we have murder and death 
and the killing of many and the killing of many more celebrated. We're only four chapters into the Bible and we have that. Well, by the time we get to chapter 5, we get a table of nations or the descendants of Noah, so we have some genealogy things going on here. We get to chapter 6, and as chapter 6 opens, the point is, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, verse 5, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, every, only, continually. I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's all come to a head. This is the end of the line. The story to this point is the story of the entrance of sin into the world and the spread of sin throughout the world along with its effects. As humans are alienated from one another, killing one another, this wasn't an era of great marriages, uh, killing one another, uh, they're alienated within themselves with guilt and sin and shame, and they're also alienated between themselves and their maker, as they were guilty before God. And it's plain from the evil that was in their hearts continually. And we all know this. We all know this sinful evil in our hearts. It manifests itself in different ways, smarter and more sneaky at times. And by God's grace, much of it's restrained and we're changed with the new creation salvation that he brings. But we all know this evil in our hearts. We are capable of it all. There was increasing corruption throughout the earth. And the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And so God comes to Noah, that one righteous one who walked with him, and said, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. The story of Noah was a story of a watery judgment. And the story from there over several chapters is a story of Noah preaching righteousness. He's called a preacher of righteousness in the New Testament. And others mocking and responding by rejecting the message, and then the water comes, and then the water comes, and the boat is lifted up off the ground. And whereas in one moment you had a world full of clamor, and noise, and murder, and trouble, and violence, the picture, once the boat is all the way up, and the earth is covered in water, is that of one very quiet place. One very quiet land. There was no land. Only water. God put humanity down. And with that water covering the earth, we have ourselves a picture of judgment. Before the water came, evil continually in human hearts. While it came, mockery and rejection of Noah's message, and after it came, quiet. Almost as if in Genesis 1, before God forms and fills the earth, he has created the heavens and the earth, and all we have is the deep, the waters, unformed creation as the Spirit hovers over what God had made. It is... Literarily, what the author Moses is doing is showing us that God has uncreated his world. He's taken it back to zero. This is a new beginning. The story of Noah is a story of a watery judgment. And this story is just a foretaste of what is to come. For humanity in Noah and Adam 
still bears sin, still has guilt. Adam remains our covenant head. We are still guilty. We have guilty consciences and we remain alienated from God, one another, and uh, within ourselves. And that's plain in the chapters that follow after the flood. It's only a chapter or two later that we have the Tower of Babel as humanity comes together to make a name for themselves. That is not how it was to be. And it's chapters and chapters later through the book of Genesis that we see just how sinful we are. Read it and you will see. Or listen to the preaching series we spent about a year on Genesis several years, years back. Point is, is that the judgment that took place through water covering the face of the earth was nothing compared to the judgment that will come one day when God judges the souls of men. The first picture is a picture of judgment, the waters of judgment. And it's not that the judgment to come is exactly like this judgment. It's that this judgment is a foretaste of that judgment to come. So when we think of Noah's Ark, sometimes we have pictures that are really cute and friendly and who doesn't love animals, but it was a, it was a horrifying scene and it was a horrifying day when those waters began to rise and slowly men and women understood that, that, uh, that Noah was right. A second picture, the Ark of Salvation. How does baptism correspond with the story of Noah's Flood, a second picture, an ark of salvation. The story of Noah's flood was a story not just of a watery judgment, but of safe passage through that watery judgment. You have a world covered with water, and you think of the boat as really big when we imagine Noah's ark, and humanly speaking, it was a very large boat. And Noah was given measurements, and God gave him exactly what he needed. And Noah obeyed the Lord, and he built the ark, the scripture says, over many, many years. He's a man of faith to follow for sure. But if you were to zoom out on the earth to see the whole earth covered in water, you'd have to zoom in to see this boat like a speck on top of the planet. And you think of how fragile that moment was. Those days were like a little seed. Eight persons, including Noah, are all of humanity that was left. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, and he saw them. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Did the ark save him? Sure. Did faith save him? In this sense, yes. It was by faith that he kept and believed the promises of God. It's by faith that he built the ark. And this salvation through those waters of judgment that killed everybody else is but a foretaste of the salvation that God has to come for those who are in Christ. Christ's salvation is very much greater. Don't we see it on the page here in this very passage? Verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins. Oh, so here, the ark got them through a, a universal flood judgment, but it didn't get sin out of the human family. 
Uh, They still had trouble on the ark, and they certainly had trouble when they got off. Noah was found drunk in his tent naked one night. Christ also suffered once for sins. Oh, this is a completely better kind of salvation. A salvation from sin and its penalty of death and from from guilt. The righteous for the unrighteous. For we need more than just to have our sins and guilt taken away. We actually need, as Nathan said in his testimony, Christ to live for us and to live the life that we could not. And I like this phrase, the life that we refuse to live. Christ came and lived for us, a righteous for the unrighteous. Now look down at verse 21. Baptism doesn't save you as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. This is the guilt being taken away through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the new life that we have in Jesus. We die with him and we're raised with him. You see how it works. We're united to Jesus by faith so that his death counts for ours. In baptism, which pictures this, the individual will go under the water and just imagine, imagine that is like drowning, being put to death, buried, and then raised to new life. Ever see anyone emerge from a grave in a cemetery or a graveyard? Uh, I haven't. Jesus rose from the grave, and spiritually speaking, that has happened to us. We were dead in our sins, Christian, and you have been raised to new life. This pictures that. And one day there will be a physical resurrection with a glorified body and all. Very exciting, different sermon. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This pictures so much of our hope. There's an article this morning in some country. There's an old couple. They're the oldest couple in the country at uh, age 103 and age 102. Uh, And in these pieces, they always ask them, um, what's your advice? How did you make it this long? And there's the famous gal who says, it was a Dr. Pepper a day. You can try that. Um, And and for this couple that was, well, we've never argued already in trouble there. We'll make it to 102 or 103, maybe 101. So we've never argued, and they recommend that for a long life. And then uh, they go outside a lot. So they never argued, and they go outside. And let me just say, which is a great article, and it's worth celebrating old age like this. Um, It's just prolonging life at its best. All all, all Noah's story did was prolong life. Those eight persons died and were buried. Uh, That was not Noah's flood and the salvation through it was not the fulfillment of God's promise to Adam and to Eve that a son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and turn back the curse and reverse death and remove the alienation between us and God. The flood didn't do that. I mean, it was a major event. It was major salvation, and they should be majorly thankful that it wasn't the salvation that God brings about. There is a whole lot of Bible to go after Genesis chapter 6, in other words. And it's more than just prolonged life, but a different kind and quality of life and length of life altogether. And baptism pictures this, uniting us to Jesus in his death 
so that it counts for ours. For he goes through the waters of judgment in his death, you see. It's not just that baptism marks us safe from judgment. That's true. It's that baptism marks us safe through judgment. The judgment fell on someone. The judgment fell on Christ. And he shielded us from that as the ark shields the ape from the judgment of God that surrounds them in the waters that have judged the earth. We're marked safe from, but also through judgment, through death with Jesus and resurrection to new life. Water baptism pictures our death with Jesus and resurrection to new life with him. Oh, how thankful we should be to God for such a particular sign. There's a little more going on with the sign than that, but that is certainly what's happening with this sign. Of course, there's more to salvation than a salvation from judgment. There is salvation to life with God. And so we move on to a third image now. That of a new creation in which righteousness dwells. The story of Noah is the story of a new Adam setting foot on a new creation. I said earlier that it's as though God is hitting reset on the earth and it would have been quiet as it was quiet in that first verse of the Bible before God forms and fills his creation. It's covered with water. The spirit hovers over the surface of the deep. And with an allusion to that early pre-forming of creation moment, we're told that the wind blows over the water. And what comes back with a sign of life but a dove, which will grow in Scripture to symbolize the Holy Spirit himself. And the Holy Spirit is that which gives life and that who animates. And so when Noah sets foot on dry land. He is as a new Adam on a new creation and we have a restart. But of course, he is not the new Adam, capital N, new Adam. He's not the new Adam, the new man that we need. God will speak to Noah a commission and in covenantal terms, just like he spoke to Adam and give him dominion over the, the world and commission him to be fruitful and to multiply there are a variety of similarities that are very explicit between Noah and Adam. But the land on which Noah steps is the land on which we live right now. We're still underneath that Noahic covenant. God is not flooding the earth, and that's a good thing. But we need something better than what we have right now. We need bodies better. We need an earth better. We need a life better. And just as that judgment with water was great, but only a foretaste of the far greater judgment to come, be warned. And just as the salvation that those eight experienced through that ark was great, and yet a foretaste of the far greater salvation that comes to us through the ark, who is Jesus, so too the, final, the finality of our salvation, this new creation, Although the earth that Noah set foot on as a new beginning was great for them, 
not filled as it was with violence, one day, as Peter tells us, we, as we await a new creation in which righteousness dwells. It's not, uh, it's not by accident that Peter, when he writes his second letter, and turn with me over to Peter's second letter, turn to the right just a few pages, 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter is speaking to readers in similar situations, exiles and sojourners in this earth. And in verse 5, he says, they deliberately overlook this fact, those who ridicule them, that the heavens existed long ago. Now, listen to this with the story of Noah as backdrop. The earth was formed out of water, Genesis 1, and through water by the word of God, let there be light, Genesis 1, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That's Noah's flood. See, I'm not making this stuff up, people. Verse 7, By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now verse 13, But according to his promise... We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now back to 1 Peter chapter 3. So Noah steps off the ark and, and he's a righteous man. It's relative, but he had faith and so he was righteous. He walked with God by faith, but he was not without sin. But this new creation about which Peter speaks and holds out to us as our hope it's a new creation that is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For as Jesus Christ rose from the dead, Scripture tells us that he is a first fruits of a new creation. Others come after him in a body like his body. And he gives life by his spirit to the sinners whom he saves by faith in him. Thus it is written, Paul says, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, has become a life-giving spirit. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And as we've prayed earlier and spoken, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he's prepared beforehand. Jesus Christ raised from the dead is the firstborn of a new creation. You really are a new creation. If your faith is in Jesus and you've been born again, the old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Nevertheless, while we are already new creations, we still await the culmination and the finality of all that God will do. So we could say that the new creation has come in a person who is Jesus. It has come to a people, the church, and it will come one day in a place, the new heavens and the new earth. And baptism, insofar as it pictures our death with Jesus and our resurrection with him to new life, is a picture of that new creation work that God performs. Baptism in three pictures, the waters of judgment, an ark of salvation, and a new creation in which righteousness dwells. For we are raised to walk in newness of life. Now for that question for all of us, where are you at in this story? 
I've said that the story of Noah's flood is not just in the Old Testament in a sequence of otherwise independent stories, but it is part of the story of the first book of Genesis and the spread of the effects and reality of sin throughout the world. But that story is actually a part of the story of the whole Bible. Baptism is a part of the story that God is writing. And in baptism, God writes us symbolically, as the invisible is made visible. In baptism, God writes us right into the story. So it's a good question. Where are you in this story? Well, are you outside the ark this morning? And maybe you're outside the ark Mocking those in it, you can be in church and think this is a sham. Well, you're not the first. Noah was surrounded by many women who thought that his faith and his God was a sham. And the Lord saved him. And I would just say to you, if you're in a place of hard-hearted unbelief and mockery, that as sure as judgment came on that generation, I warn you, judgment is coming. And as sure as that was a great judgment on that day... So the judgment that is coming is very much greater. And maybe you're outside the ark and you're not mocking, but you would love in. And you believe these things that you've heard, maybe over the last few weeks visiting our church. And our word to you is whatever of a kind that Noah was preaching himself speaking of the one true and living God and the condemnation of sin and the need to repent. And believe and come to him. No one did. But an offer to that generation was salvation. And an offer to you this morning. You're in the right place. Is salvation. Come through the door. Which is Jesus. Who said I am the door. Come through the door. And in the book of Genesis. There at the height of that story. It says the Lord shut them in. You come through the door who is Jesus. And the Lord will shut you in. You will be safe. You come to him. And it is not baptism that saves you. Don't let me contradict Peter. I'm not doing that. Peter himself, you'll remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, said that we are born again through a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's unfading and imperishable and undefiled, kept in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Baptism, he says, saves you here, Because baptism is shorthand for the whole of the salvation experience. By taking on baptism, we do so by faith, and then we picture what God has done. And in that sense, it's like a a signature that stands in for you, or initials that stand in for your, your whole signature. You get the idea. Jesus Christ saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's how we're saved. And we lay hold of that salvation by grace and through faith. So Christian, if you are inside the boat, and if you're a Christian, you are inside the boat, then be greatly, greatly encouraged. For what we are about to see has happened to you, and it is meant for your great encouragement. We see here in this very passage a reminder that Christ has suffered for our sins, that we have A good conscience now. We aren't alienated from God with guilt in our hearts. And we're made new through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But Peter lands it in a very important place. Speaking of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven 
and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Now, I picked this passage because it had the word baptism in it. But Peter could just as well have gotten this done without mentioning baptism, for he is encouraging saints in a particular situation. Why did he bring baptism up, and why is this whole section here in the first place? I find it interesting that in both this letter and in the next letter, Peter is referring to Noah, who is a preacher of righteousness and who is rejected. And this whole book of 1 Peter is to Christians who find themselves in a world judged by the world and rejected by the world. And so why does he mention Jesus' suffering for their sins? Surely it's an encouragement to know that our sins are forgiven. But the accent there is on the fact that he suffered. For you are suffering as well, Christian, in some fashion. And your Lord understands it. Jesus also suffered. But guess what? His suffering is over. And where is he now? And this is the point. He is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Which makes sense of the whole passage now because after he was made alive in the spirit, he went and proclaimed his victory over sin to the spirits in the prison, those who set themselves against the Lord. He proclaims his victory and now we're told he's at the Father's right hand where all these authorities are subjected to him. And don't miss that word subjected for if you wind wind the passage back about a chapter, you're going to find that Christians in vulnerable positions have been addressed to bear up under their suffering, to look to Jesus who suffered and to suffer like he suffered, to be subject to governing authorities, and they're in Rome, to be subject to masters, Christian slaves, to be subject to husbands, even unbelieving husbands, Christian women. Some of you are in very difficult marriages. 1 Peter 3 is a word for you. And after having spoken to each in their roles in turn concerning their vulnerable situation in which they are to be subject, and if you have any questions about what those things mean, tap a pastor or a Christian friend. We've got sermons through this book. But after having done that, how encouraging is it for his readers to hear this, that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. And one day, when fire burns up the earth, and there's a new creation in which righteousness dwells, there won't be any apparent contradiction or competition with the lordship of Jesus. He is overall now, take great encouragement, Christian, if you're in the ark. The winds are blowing and the waves are hitting, to extend the metaphor a a little bit, But there will a day come when we set foot on a new creation that is new indeed. And church, don't just be encouraged this morning, but be engaged. For as we witness these baptisms, as I've said, we're not just witnessing baptisms, but we are witnesses to their faith as they are baptized. It's not just themselves saying, marked safe from eternal damnation. Something worse than what happened in Noah's flood. It's not the only thing they're saying. We're also saying something. We're saying, we've heard your testimony. Many of us know these young men. We've seen your faith. And we're marking you safe. That's what baptism is. It's not just an individual, but it's a church's sign by which to mark disciples' 
faith, safe. And as we mark them safe, we mark them into Christ's body and take responsibility for them as we've said. Let us turn now to in prayer before we, before we sing. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this gracious sign of baptism that you've given to us. You could have just provided salvation with the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and and new life and all of that. But you kindly and graciously gave us the sign of that new covenant salvation in in baptism. And so we pray to be a church that stewards this sign for all that it is meant to be. And we give you thanks this morning for the testimony of these young men and praise you that you are a God who saves sinners like them and like us. And pray now that as they proclaim their faith and make this vow through the sign to walk with the Lord, that you would empower them by your spirit as you promised to do to walk faithfully with your son unto the end. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.